Hey friends, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. Theopolis trains men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs will learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. This episode is going to be a Q&A session with Peter Lightheart and Alistair Roberts. We set up a Curious Cat account where you can leave questions for us and we'll answer them on future segments. And I've got a link to that account down there in the show notes for you. In this particular episode, they're going to be discussing psalm singing, a portion of Daniel 9, and how Satan is depicted in the Bible. With the psalm singing section, we have included several things in the show notes that will be a help to you. During our course weeks here at Theopolis, we actually chant and sing through several dozen psalms over the course of a week, and I've included the liturgy and the psalms for you, as well as an example of what Lutheran chants will sound like, as Peter mentions Lutheran chanting in his answers. We really hope that you enjoy and are sharpened by this discussion over these questions, and as always, thank you so much for listening. Welcome to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm Peter Lightheart, and I'm here today with Brian Motes, who's running our equipment and Alistair Roberts, who's joining us from the UK. Uh, Jim Jordan, who has been on our podcasts in the last several weeks, is on uh, out of town, so he is not joining us this week uh, or for the next couple of episodes, but we'll get Jim back in as soon as he returns, returns home. Uh, this week, we're doing a Q&A session uh, for the Theopolis podcast. We've done this one time in the past, we plan to make it a regular monthly focus of at least one episode of the uh, of the podcast. Uh, you can post your questions on our Curious Cat account, and I'm sure that Brian will link you up to the Curious Cat account with the podcast. You can follow the links and post your questions, and then uh, we find the questions that we want to answer. We don't promise to answer every question that gets posted but we find the ones that uh, we think might be helpful to other people and the things that we feel like we have something some something to say. And uh, so we, we'll try to get to that at, uh, once a month uh, and answer those questions. So we're going to try to answer three questions today in our podcast. And the first one that we have is this. What are some helpful resources for learning to sing the Psalms? Uh, unfortunately, this is, uh, this is a question that uh, Jim Jordan would be uh, qualified to maybe to answer better. He's worked on the Psalms for many years, as uh, many of you may know. He has translated a good portion of the Psalter from Hebrew and uh, tried to translate the the Psalms in a way that reflects the uh, the uh, structure of the Psalm itself, the way that it's written in the Hebrew, the even the even the word order, the way that the the wording of the Psalm is structured. That creates a, a little bit of uh, unfamiliarity in the in the syntax for the English versions, but it's a way of uh, honoring the principle that uh, God's word is not just the ideas that are being communicated, but the form that that comes in. Uh, the form of those words is important for us to receive, and so we want to sing God's words as closely to the way that they were written as we can. Uh, Jim has translated a good bit of the Psalter. He's we put um, some of the Psalter. Uh, uh, Jim has done this, put some of the Psalter into chant versions, and uh, he's found chant settings or composed chant settings that will go with those. And that's a project that we hope to continue. Uh, as uh, Jim has been out of commission of late, he hasn't been able to get back to it, but we hope we can enlist some musicians to continue that project and to hopefully to fill out, finish out the Psalter and have a Theopolis Psalter available. Uh, so, uh, if you ask this question in five years, maybe we can say the best way to learn it is the 
Theopas Psalter and all the associated learning materials that we've developed along with that. Uh, being in 2019, we don't have that available. So, But we can't recommend a few things. Um, uh, first of all, I think it's, it's worth reflecting a little bit on why uh, the Psalter is important to our piety and to our worship and to the health of the church. You can make, uh, I think, all kinds of arguments here. One would be a historical argument. This has been, uh, the, the Psalter has been the church's hymn book throughout the centuries. Uh, it was Israel's uh, hymn book prior to, uh, the, prior to Pentecost, and the church inherited it. Um, throughout the early church, psalms were a, a central part of worship. In the medieval world, especially in the monasteries, psalms were a central part of worship. Uh, at the time of the Reformation, there's a there's a development of a congregational singing and a lot of hymn writing that's done, particularly in the Lutheran tradition. But in the Reformed tradition and also in the Lutheran tradition, there are um, ways of reintroducing and extending the Psalter so that it's not just a monastic specialty, but the Psalter is something that's sung by the entire congregation. Uh, and it's really only in the last couple hundred years that the Psalter has ceased to be the central songbook of the church. And even today, you know, we have, um, we have uh, praise songs that are often based on psalms, or at least portions of psalms. Uh, and a lot of churches still sing traditional psalmody. We have Lutheran settings of the psalms. We have Anglican settings of the psalms. We have metrical versions in various Reformed and Presbyterian churches that are settings of the psalms. We have a Catholic settings of the psalms. Orthodox churches sing the psalms, so there a lot of a lot of churches continue this tradition. Um, but we think it's uh, we think it's particularly important to recapture where where it's been lost to recapture this this tradition because of the the, the nature of the psalter. The psalter is a a book of songs that we would not sing if God had not given us these songs to sing. When we think of uh, psalms that we want to songs that we want to sing, we think of songs that are maybe soothing. Uh, there are very few war songs uh, that are written for the church. Uh, these days, at least, there are very few war songs, but many of the psalms are war songs. Uh, there are very, very few hymns, especially in the modern age, that are written as uh, song, songs of lament, but the Psalter is full of songs of lament. Uh, you have uh, a, a, the a widest possible range of emotional expressions in the Psalter, the widest possible range of experiences, and they put uh, the church and individuals within the church in the setting of real life and the real combats and struggles that we face in life and a real world public conflict. That's the, that's the setting of a lot of David's Psalms. And uh, that's the, as we sing the Psalms, then we begin to see our, uh, our life of discipleship in that setting. It takes on that kind of tone. We recognize that we're soldiers in Jesus' army and we recognize that uh, like Jesus, we're beset by enemies, and we cry out for for help in the in the middle of conflicts. So um, the Psalter is, forms a certain kind of piety and a certain kind of sturdy um, a, a sturdy kind of church life that I think uh, that we think is particularly important in uh, in this uh, in in the age that we're living in. Anyone, anything you want to add to that, Alistair? Not particularly. I think you covered most of things there. As far as learning to sing the Psalms, I, I would recommend, if you, if, if you can't find a way to sing the Psalms, at least read them. Um, 
it was common in the in the middle middle ages for monks at least to sing through the Psalter every week. Um, you can put yourself on a schedule of reading through the Psalter every month. You know, it's a pretty easy division: 150 Psalms, roughly 30 days per month. You read five Psalms a day, and you get through the Psalter every month. Um, and that that de- that develops a habit. So even if you even if you don't have resources to sing it, I'd recommend that you make a habit of reading through them. Um, and there are various levels of uh, of Psalter availability. There's there are metrical psalms, that is, psalms that have been turned into hymn-like verses, r- usually rhyming verses, uh, written like a, a, a traditional hymn, uh, and often set to to familiar hymn tunes. I'm thinking of the the Trinity Psalter, which is accompanies the the, the Trinity Hymnal, which is, is used in a lot of Presbyterian churches. The Trinity Psalter is a companion to the Trinity Hymnal. It has all 150 psalms. They're in verse form, so they're not uh, they're they're not the text of the psalm, but they're written like hymns. And the hymn tunes are not are not included in the Psalter, but they are familiar hymn tunes. If you have the Trinity Hymnal, then the Trinity Psalter has um, gives you the tunes that you're supposed to use for each of the psalms. That's a way to get familiar with the psalms, even though you're uh, you know, without without having to learn a bunch of new tunes, you can learn. Uh, if you know hymn tunes, then you can sing most of the most of the uh, uh, most of the tunes that are in the Trinity Psalter. And there are other psalters like that that use traditional hymn tunes to that are set uh, that set um, metrical psalms. Uh, at Theopolis, we advocate chanted psalmody, and that's uh, for the reasons that I already stated that um, we want to sing. The text as close as we can to the way God made it, God wrote it, and the way God wrote it is not just the words that are used, but the order of the words and the syntax and the form of the particular psalm. Uh, psalms have literary forms, and as much as we as much as we can, we want to be able to uh, embody those, and we want we want to internalize those by singing the psalms as they were given to us. And chanting is a way to do, uh, to do that. You. Just take the the text as translated into English, and you have chant tones and chant tunes that go with that. Uh, there are a lot of resources for this. Maybe the simplest resources are found in in the Lutheran tradition. Um, the um, Missouri Synod uh, Lutheran Hymnal has, uh, uh, I believe, all 150 psalms. I may be mistaken about that, but they have many psalms that are uh, set up with markings within the psalms that tell you how to sing them, and then they have about 12 or so chant tunes, uh, and you can sing those chant tunes with any psalm. If you know what the markings mean and you learn this handful of tunes, then you can chant any uh, any psalm in the Psalter uh, just by taking up the text and um, say, we're going to sing this to tune C, to chant tune C, and then everybody knows what that is and you begin to chant. Uh, I've been in Lutheran settings where uh, that's exactly what they do. They just pick up their Psalter. The, the text is right in front of them. They've all memorized the tune, which is only about four or five measures long. It's not hard to sing, and they just learn to chant through it. Uh, uh, Brian is going to put up a link to the uh, uh, Missouri Synod um, uh, uh, website where there are uh, recordings of some of the chant tunes uh, being sung uh, to particular psalms. So they, I think they, they have... Uh, examples of each of the chant tunes with particular psalms. An- another uh, psalm resource that I found helpful, 
a little less, a little more complicated than the Lutheran uh, psalm, psalm chants that I've been describing, but uh, Psalter that we've used at Theopolis and that I used in previous, in, uh, in previous settings is the uh, Common Worship Psalter, which is, is uh, was put together in conjunction with the Book of Common Worship, a kind of revision of the Book of Common Prayer that was done in the uh, Church of England some years ago. A Book of Common Psalter has all 150 psalms that are complete. The translations are uh, pretty good. You'll have to make some adjustments at some point points if you want to capture the uh, capture the, uh, uh, the the actual Hebrew text. The Psalm one is instead of being about the man, the righteous man turns into a righteous they. Um, blessed are they uh, who walk in the way of. Um, Blessed are they who have not walked in the counsel of the wicked, nor lingered in the way of sinners, nor sat in the assembly of the scornful. Of course, the Hebrew says, blessed is the man, and then all the way through, it's a singular. So that's one of several that you'd have to adjust if you wanted to capture the exact um, content of the Hebrew text. Um, but a lot of the, the translations are pretty are pretty good. Uh, they translate all of the Psalms, including the rough ones, the imprecatory Psalms. Uh, the one downside of this Psalter is the tunes seem to be set for um, uh, boys' choirs. <laughs> uh, choirs uh, of, uh, 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 who have voices that haven't, men's voices who haven't changed yet, or women's voices. that They're pitched really high, and so it um, is, uh, in order to use this psalter, it's better if you know how to transpose. It's a, uh, at least a, an easily available psalter that uh, I think is... Um, a good option for learning to sing the Psalms. Uh, let me, I want to sing a couple of these, a uh, couple of verses of them. Psalm 46, which is the basis for A Mighty Fortress, actually uses a, a chant tune that's taken from A Mighty Fortress. You'll recognize this. If I can sing it properly, you'll recognize the tune. God is our refuge and strength and very present help in trouble. That's the, that's the psalm that I'm singing. God is our refuge and strength. A very present help in trouble. Therefore we will not fear though the earth be moved, and though the waters tremble in the heart of the sea, though the waters rage and swell, and though the mountains quake at the towering seas. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy place of the dwelling of the Most High. God is in the midst of her, therefore shall she not be removed. God shall help her at the break of day, and so on. Uh, that's a, a, one of several places where you'll have familiar hymns that have been turned into uh, chant tunes for the sake of the Psalter. Um, I think a number of the psalms in this Psalter match really nicely with the, with the content of the psalms. They, they get kind of nasty sounding, somewhat dissonant, uh, tunes for some of the lament psalms. Uh, they have some pretty, uh, uh, pretty uh, strong-sounding uh, chant tunes for the um, for the imprecatory psalms. Uh, I want to sing a, a few verses of Psalm 58. Uh, I won't sing this. This uh, I won't sing as far as this verse, but this includes things like "Break, O, o God, their teeth in their mouths, smash the fangs of these lions, uh, let them be like the slimy track of the snail, like the untimely birth that never sees the sun." Uh, ever uh, before ever their pots feel the heat of the thorns green or blazing let them be swept away so this is a this is one of the rough psalms and i think the tune really captures that um captures the feel of the of the of the words let me try to sing it 
Do you indeed speak justly, you mighty? Do you rule the peoples with equity? With unjust heart you rule throughout the land. Your hands mete out violence. The wicked are estranged even from the womb. Those who speak falsehood go astray from their birth. They are as venomous as a serpent. They are like a deaf adder which stops its ears. So on. Uh, so that's the common worship psalter uh, with chants. Uh, that's one I recommend. It does require a little bit of musical skill because these are these are Anglican chant tunes, and they are um, for the 150 psalms. They probably have 120 different chant tunes. They have some repetition, but not very much. So it's it's a uh, more complicated to sing than the Lutheran uh, psalter uh, that uh, you only have to learn a certain number. Uh, just one last point on this uh, question before we move on. The uh, as you know, as you might have noticed from that singing, uh, when you're chanting this, when you're chanting the psalms, you're trying to chant in a way that um, you're wanting to chant about the speed of regular speech. Uh, there's this you, you can get chant recordings that have this kind of ethereal sound that uh, slows the slows the music way down and gives this uh, this uh, very spiritual sounding song, uh, spiritual sounding tone. Um, that really doesn't fit the tone of most of the psalms. Most of the psalms are much more gritty and real life than than that, and so it doesn't really capture what the psalms are saying. And uh, it's not really the way chant has ha, was historically done. Um, Greg, Gregorian chant was done at a, a pretty good clip and was somewhat rhythmical. And so you want to you want to chant in a way that basically is going the speed of. Uh, going the speed of speech. So again, Psalm 46, which I was singing earlier, rather than a very present help in trouble. You don't want to do that. You want to do God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore we will not fear though the earth be moved and though the mountains tremble in the heart of the sea. And so on. So that gives a, makes it easier to sing. It makes it uh, more lively to sing. I think one of the reasons why people uh, recoil from chant is because it does give this kind of uh, airy feel, and you don't you don't feel like you've got the uh, you don't feel like you're uh, getting a grip on the music. But um, if you if you sing it in the uh, again at about the speed and rhythm of of speech, then uh, then you can capture those elements, and it, it's it becomes easier to easier to use. I hope that's helpful to those. Who have asked that question about uh, resources for learning to sing the psalms? I hope and I hope I didn't dissuade you by my singing. Yeah, that, that's a good question. A, a church that's not singing the psalms, how do you encourage them encourage them to sing psalms? I think one of the things that in introducing any kind of liturgical innovation, uh, there has to be teaching and uh, patient teaching. A pastor can't force people to adopt things that they don't quite understand that seem odd to them. It's not a lack of authority, but it's a, a, it's the proper way of exercising pastoral authority. You want to you want to lead your people to to the place where they not only understand why you would want to sing psalms, but also they want to sing psalms. That'd be something, for example, that you could teach uh, you could teach on uh, music or singing as a topic directly. There are various places in uh, scripture, as as Brian pointed out in the during the course of our conversation here, that uh, where the scriptures actually command us to sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And so there's a, 
you could uh, places where that would come up and you could emphasize that uh, a broader exposure to the the biblical teaching about music would be part of the part of the answer to that and then practically the it requires some focused teaching and it requires focused teaching by somebody who has some experience doing it uh, if you have somebody who doesn't quite know how to teach uh, chant tunes how to teach teach chanting for example and uh, or somebody who's not entirely committed to it then it's hard to catch people's imagination so sometimes it's a good idea to have somebody come in from the outside um, Jim Jordan has done this in a number of churches and spend a session when he's doing a conference and uh, teaches people to sing uh, sing psalm chants uh, Paul Buckley who has been associated with biblical horizons over the years and will be uh, part of our music faculty at our fellows program in uh, in July uh, he's been teaching on chant for many years you can I believe you can find his uh, some of his uh, teaching sessions online uh, and that'll that'll be a that could be a resource for you, you can uh, he's not only explaining why you'd want to do it but he's actually giving examples so if you have somebody who knows how to do it they can set a, they can set a, a, a pattern Basically, what uh, what uh, uh, Jim Jordan and, and Paul do when they're teaching psalm chants is they sing a line, they have the people repeat the line, they sing a line, they have the people repeat a line, and they just go back and forth. And because the music is pretty simple, it's frequently pretty simple. It should be pretty simple. It doesn't take long before people catch the uh, catch the tune. And then the the trick is to learn how to fit all the words into the chant tune. That's a that requires some experience. But get, bringing in somebody from the outside to to uh, guide you in that, I think would be important. If uh, if you don't want to bring in somebody for a conference, then find a Missouri Synod Lutheran in town, or find any Lutheran. Uh, most Lutheran churches uh, have some experience with psalm chanting, and they, as I was mentioning, they use the the simpler psalm chants. So ask the Lutheran pastor in town to come by and teach your congregation how to do it. And then I, I think another part of it is just practice. Um, I've been in different churches. Um, in uh, Moscow, Idaho, and here in Birmingham, where we have uh, regular times of singing uh, that are just um, an hour or more where the congregation is just singing together. It's not a worship service. It's not, a, uh, it's, it's not preaching. There's nothing else but singing. And that's an opportunity to introduce new hymns, new psalms, to introduce new styles of music, and... Um, um, Again, uh, uh, Jim Jordan, I know, has done this in some churches. Jim likes to call them psalm roars. The psalms are written by the Lion of Judah, J uh, David, uh, and David's associates. Uh, by and large, they're written by David and David's associates. Uh, and so they are the, it's, the, it's uh, the roar of the Lion of Judah. It's the roar of the people of God uh, responding to the roar of God. So uh, having regular, maybe monthly, sessions where the congregation is invited together, sing for an hour, then enjoy a meal together, sing for an hour, and uh, just have fellowship afterwards. Um, you, you, can't, you can't develop in your musical abilities without practice, and so um, doing it on a regular basis is really important. The second question we'll uh, address today is about Daniel 9, and I'll read the entire question. What's the best way to understand Daniel's prophecy in chapter 9, about 70 weeks I've been reading lots of dispensational guys lately, and they all think that we're in the time between the 69th week and the 70th week, which will be the Great Tribulation. This doesn't make much sense to me, but I could use some help. What's the Theopolis reading of Daniel 9? 
Well, Alistair and I have not talked about this chapter or this passage, so I don't know if there is yet a Theopolis reading, a consensus reading. Uh, maybe one will emerge in the course of our discussion. Let me just make one point at the beginning and then uh, get your thoughts on it, Alistair. To the questioner, uh, I'm glad it doesn't make much sense to you. It shouldn't make much sense to you. It doesn't make much sense. Looking at Daniel 9, verse 25, we're given pretty clear parameters, time parameters, for these weeks. Um, you, you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. It will be built together with plaza and moat, even in times of distress. So we'll, I, I want to talk about that division of the seven, 62 weeks in a second, but um, the parameters of the 69 weeks are from the decree to rebuild Jerusalem, which is Cyrus's degree, decree in uh, 538 BC. That's the decree that's being talked about. Daniel is living in exile. Uh, the chapter begins with Daniel reading the book of Jeremiah and realizing that 70 years of exile are about to end. And so he's anticipating the end of that, um, the end of this, that 70 year period. And he's told that after that 70 year period comes to an end, there'll be an additional 70 period of 70 weeks of years, 490 years, I think a symbolic number. Uh, the parameters of that is from the decree to rebuild Jerusalem. That's going to happen sh uh, shortly within Daniel's lifetime until Messiah comes. So that takes care of the 69 of the 70 weeks. And then the final week is a week when all the, all the things that are described in verse 27 take place. Uh, when after the Christ comes, after the anointed one comes, and all the work of Christ is being summarized. He's going to make a firm covenant. He puts a stop to sacrifice. Um, it conflates the coming of Christ with the destruction of, uh, of the desolation of Jerusalem that's described in verse 26, destroy the city and the sanctuary. So that final week is the week of Messiah the Prince, but it's that week stretches over the lifetime of Jesus and the ministry of Jesus into the first generation of the church. Um, but those are the parameters, and any idea that we're still somehow in the seventy-week period just doesn't doesn't fit at all with what uh, doesn't fit with the context of what Daniel's concerned about, uh, and it doesn't fit with what the text actually states. Thinking about the symbolism of this, it's worth taking it against the background of other things that we see within the account of Daniel. So earlier on in that chapter, we have him reflecting upon the fact that the seventy years that are given for um, the period of exile in Jeremiah are almost completed. And so there's that background, there's 70 years in exile, and then there's 70 weeks of years that he mentions later on in that chapter. But then there are other details as well that are quite fascinating. So he talks about after 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself and the people of the prince who is to come, etc. Um, earlier on within the book, there is a reference to 62 years, which is an odd thing to mention, but in verse 31 of 30 and 31 of chapter 5, that very night Belshazzar, king of the Chaldeans, was slain, and Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. It's a strange thing to have that number 62 appear, appearing twice, and the fact that it's mentioned about 62 years of age, you'd expect there's something mentioning that detail in connection with the 62 weeks later 
maybe suggest that there is a significance to that, particularly what happens afterwards, that Daniel himself is, as it were, cut off within the lion's den. He suffers a sort of death penalty. He's placed within a pit in the ground with the lions and a stone is put on the cover. And maybe we're supposed to be reading this alongside Daniel's story. Looking more generally in scripture, I think you see this theme of 70 times 7, um, 70 weeks of years. It connects with the vengeance that Lamech speaks about in Genesis chapter 4. It also connects with what Christ talks about, forgiveness and your brother sinning against you and you forgive him 70 times 7. And that forgiveness takes God's pattern of forgiveness in restoring his people from exile. And I suspect at that point what we're seeing is an allusion to God restoring his people these 70 weeks of years and that that paradigm of forgiveness should be the one that shapes the way that we treat those who sin against us. And so bringing some of those other aspects of context and the echoes into correspondence, maybe we can help get a bit more purchase upon what's being spoken of here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like the the, um, the typological connection with um, Daniel and the and obviously Daniel is going through a, a death and resurrection kind of event there. In and you said right in the aftermath of the mention of, of sixty two weeks. Um, I wanted to go back to the division of the seventy weeks into three sections. You have seven weeks and sixty two weeks. Verse twenty five says that that leaves one extra week, and the division has to do with the. Well, the, the the first the first period, the seven week period, seven weeks of years, forty nine years, is the period from the decree until the time that the city is rebuilt with plaza and moat, as it says in verse twenty five, even in times of distress. And we know that Joshua and Zerubbabel as they're rebuilding the temple, and then Ezra later on, there are people in the land already that are uh, that are trying to stop them. They're, those are the distresses that's being talked about. But that seventy week period. Uh, matches pretty literally the period of time between the decree of Cyrus and the completion of the walls of Jerusalem. Um, that's not the standard contemporary chronology of Ezra and Nehemiah, but if uh, you go to the uh, Biblical Horizons website and look up uh, Ezra and Nehemiah in Jim Jordan's uh, essays on biblical chronology, uh, he makes, a, I think, a compelling argument that Ezra and Nehemiah takes place within about a 50-year period from the time that Cyrus sends the people back until the time the walls are completed. Contemporary uh, chronology has that over a couple of generations, but I, uh, there's, uh, that doesn't make, I don't think that makes much sense of the way Ezra and Nehemiah work. So you have that, that period, the period of the rebuilding of the city, and then you have the 62-week period, and that's from the end of the rebuilding of the city until the time the Messiah comes. Uh, that doesn't seem to be a, a literal chronological marker in the way that the seven-week period is. And overall... 490 years doesn't match what we know or what we, our current chronologies of the ancient world. Uh, as I said, Cyrus's decrees in 538, so it's not it's more than 490 years. But that first period is pretty close to literal. And then you have the 62-week period uh, that um, during which some of the events that Daniel prophesies about in Daniel 8, Daniel uh, 11, the events have, having to do with what we call the intertestamental period are taking place within that 62-week period. And then you have the final week of the Messiah who comes and he uh, does all, uh, all that uh, verse 24 particularly is, is uh, saying, oh, by the end of that 70 weeks, transgression will be dealt with, 
there'll be an end of sin. He'll make atonement for iniquity. He'll bring in everlasting righteousness, seal up prophecy, and the anointed, uh, and, and the most holy will be anointed. That's, I believe, a way of describing the, the work and the ministry of Jesus. That's what Jesus accomplishes, and that's uh, within that uh, 70-week period that's subdivided into these three sub-periods. Well, let's move on to the last question. Uh, this one has to do with the devil. Uh, and uh, here's the question that comes from our Curious Cat account. My question is in regards to the identity of the devil in Scripture. Recently, I've read some articles that claim that the Scriptures present the devil and Satan as two different beings. The devil is allegedly the cherubic ser seraphic figure who, through the deception in the garden, is cast out of the divine council, signified by the fact that he's cursed with crawling in the dust. Satan, on the other hand, is alleged to, uh, allegedly a different archangel by the name of Semael, who remained in the divine council after the devil was cast out and is identified with the punishing angel who kills off the firstborn of Egypt, afflicts Saul, and slays the Assyrian army. Is there any validity to the assertion that the Bible presents that the Bible presents the devil and Satan as different figures, or has the author of the article simply made some exegetical blunders? Uh, well, I'm not familiar with this argument, so I don't know all the support that's uh, given for this. I, I do think that this is um, a, a mistake. And uh, I can cite a couple of proof texts uh, in support of that claim. Um, both of them from Revelation. Uh, Revelation 12 begins with, uh, the heavens are open and John sees a vision of a woman uh, laboring w with, uh, with a child, a dragon standing close by to gobble up the child as soon as he's born. And um, when the dragon is thrown down, we have this in verse 9. The great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old, who is called the devil and Satan, deceives the whole world. Uh, who deceives the whole world? He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. So that's clearly uh, identifying the dragon with the serpent of old, the Edenic serpent, and then identifies him also as devil and Satan. So you have four different identifications. Uh, those aren't four different beings. Uh, it's the same being being described in four different ways, and I uh, uh, think that those are highlighting four different aspects of Satan's work. Um, and I come back to that in a second. But just the other the other proof text is uh, beginning of uh, Revelation twenty, um, the beginning of the passage about the millennium. Uh, verse one says, "I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having uh, the key to of the abyss with a great chain in his hand. He laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan." and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the abyss. So again, you have the same four identifiers, the dragon, the serpent, the devil, Satan. Uh, that's not four different beings that are thrown down. Those, those are, that's a fourfold name of one being. Uh, it may be linking up with some other fourfolds in Revelation, um, but it's, these are, it's like, uh, um, you know, Donald Trump and the president are not two different uh, beings, as much as some people in our country might wish it were so, but it is the fact that the president and Donald Trump are the same, uh, the same person. Those are two different ways of describing the same <laughs> entity, the same person, uh, his given name and the office that he holds. Uh, the fact that they're both referring to the same person doesn't mean they're identical in meaning. The word president doesn't mean Trump. <laughs> And the word Trump no, does not yet mean leader of the free world. Um, 
I think that's what's going on in these passages. We have a number of different names given to the same being, and they're not being, uh, there's no indication. In fact, it's the opposite. Uh, Not only is there no indication that they're distinct beings, but uh, they're clearly being identified as the same being. I think there are more general um, hermeneutical issues here as well in how we handle Old Testament texts, how we allow the New Testament to shed light upon those things, and the way that we use extra-biblical material. I mean, we don't have uh, an archangel by the name of Samael in Scripture itself. This is something that comes from a larger body of extra-scriptural mythology, and there's been a lot of work done in that sort of area lately. Um, Think of the work of Michael Heiser and others who bring some of this mythology to bear upon our reading of scripture on occasions in ways that are helpful and illuminating. But in many other ways, it's almost like scripture being swamped by this world of its own, as it were, fan fiction that is not inspired, that is a sort of literature that is at best penumbral and at worst directly misleading and the exact sort of Jewish myths that Paul warns us against in the beginning of Titus. And I'm, I'm wary about these sorts of questions, what's lying behind them in the deeper um, hermeneutical posture towards the text and the way that we will use this sort of material. I believe we should look at this material, think about it and reflect upon it. Does it have a ground within the text itself? And there are ways in which within the text itself, Maybe at some points we do not yet know that the devil and Satan are distinct persons, or are not distinct persons until later on, as the text makes that clear. I think it's earlier than I think that's already clear by the New Testament in certain ways. But when we're answering these sorts of questions, I do think we need to go back to some of the brass tacks of the hermeneutics and the basic principles of how we handle the biblical text and what it means to deal with uninspired um, ancient Near Eastern literature alongside the inspired text. Yeah, Alistair, are you familiar with the argument that this, uh, this questioner uh, summarized? I-, I had not heard it before the question came in. I'm not, I'm not as familiar with it as I should be, but I've definitely encountered it on a few occasions. I did want to, again, highlight the, the distinct force of each of the different names that are given to Satan in those passages in Revelation, because um, there, there are a, a few more names uh, uh, or identifiers given to Satan in, the, in Revelation, but uh, those four are prominent. And they, they do highlight different aspects of Satan's activity. They aren't identical in meaning, if, even though they have the same referent. They're talking about the same being. Um, Satan, Shatan, means adversary and often means adversary at law or accuser. Um, that's certainly what Satan is doing in the early chapters of Job. It's what Satan is doing, the Satan is doing in uh, Zechariah 3. Uh, it's what the Satan or the devil, you should say, or this being, let's just call him this being, is a Satan. That's a more general term for an accuser uh, or an, a, a legal adversary. Uh, so insofar as uh, the devil is Satan. He is a uh, an accuser of the of the brethren. That uh, uh, the book of Revelation talks about him that way. Uh, devil, diabolos, 
uh, means something different. It's also it has to do with uh, verbal attack, but it doesn't have to do with accusation so much as slander. So uh, the uh, the devil is devil insofar as he spreads rumors and innuendo and uh, false falsehoods about God and the saints. Insofar as he slanders God and the saints, uh, when the dragon sh the dragon shows up in Revelation twelve, the dragon is waiting to devour the child. That's an Exodus image, among other things. Uh, Leviathan, uh, Pharaoh, the great dragon of Egypt, who is devouring the children of Israel. Uh, the dragon wants to devour the child, take control of the child. You could think, what, what, is, what is Pharaoh after? Um, Pharaoh is initially wanting to incorporate Israel into himself, into Egypt, to uh, Egyptize the Israelites. Um, that's what the dragon, the picture that we have in Revelation 12, is the dragon wants to eat the uh, the, the child's. Uh, he wants to incorporate the, that uh, child into his own body, as it were. Um, so I think that the idea of the dragon is particularly, Satan is a dragon insofar he particularly targets the, the, uh, the son, uh, the seed of the woman, the child of the woman. Um, I would say that uh, the devil is active today as dragon insofar as um, various anti-Christian forces are trying to seduce our children into and, and incorporate our children into uh, a worldview and a way of life that's contrary to Christ. Uh, and then the, the serpent, the serpent of old is the serpent of Eden, and there the accent is on the assault on the bride, and it's a seduction. Paul talks about uh, Eve's temptation this way, that the, there's a, a, a kind of, uh, uh, there's a, uh, an attempt, there's an attempted seduction on the part of the on the part of the serpent, um, and and the devil is the serpent insofar as he attacks the bride and tries to seduce the bride to uh, to adultery, tries to seduce the bride to uh, become his bride rather than the bride of the Lord. So those different names for the devil or Satan have different meanings, and they they bring out different dimensions of his work, even as they're all referring to the same uh, the, the same being. There's a long tradition in Christian. Uh, Christian thought of a pre-fall fall of Satan uh, that's based on certain reading of passages in the prophets in Isaiah and Ezekiel particularly uh, those passages are not elite, not directly talking about Satan they're, dire they're directly talking about in the one instance the king of Babylon that's in Isaiah and in the other instance um, some character having to do with Tyre maybe the king of Tyre uh, or perhaps the high priest of Israel who's seen as a as a chief within Tyre because Tyre was once allied with Israel during the time of Solomon. So however we take that, those are those are passages about human beings falling, not about Satan. So uh, you have to interpret those as descriptions of the fall of Satan uh, in order to get a pre-fall fall. fall. Um, you have this elaborate story in uh, Paradise Lost. Uh, Milton is probably the greatest purveyor an elaborator of this idea that uh, Satan fell, uh, and there's this great war in, in heaven prior to the fall. Um, the when the, when the Bible talks about the fall of Satan, um, Jesus talks about the fall of Satan falling from heaven like lightning. That's during Jesus' ministry. Uh, Revelation 12 talk, talks about the the dragon falling uh, from heaven at the time that the child is exalted to heaven. So at the time of Jesus' ascension, that's when Satan falls. So uh, 
when we have explicit statements about the fall of Satan, uh, it, it's about the um, it's about the accomplishment of uh, Christ's work. It's not about something that happened prior to the fall. And I think it's much more plausible and much, uh, much makes much more sense of the narrative of Genesis to think that the that uh, the serpent's fall or Satan's fall occurs at the time of the temptation of Eve. Um, Satan hasn't fallen before, but he's. Uh, I do believe that there's. Uh, it's indirect evidence, but I do believe that you can tease out evidence to say that uh, the angels and perhaps the being known as Satan in particular are given the role of guarding and uh, raising up humanity to maturity. Uh, Paul talks about this in certain terms in uh, in Galatians three and four when he talks about the law being given through angels. Uh, we're under the tutelage of uh, of uh, of the law. We're under the tutelage of uh, managers and uh, 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 we can't remember the other term that, that Paul uses, um, but we're, we're we're under some we're under angelic tutelage in our immaturity, and uh, angels are raising up to maturity. That's what Satan is assigned to do, and he doesn't do that. Instead, he wants to undermine humanity's progress by tempting Eve and subverting the whole maturation. Um, he does that. A, a number of the church fathers claim that um, Irenaeus says this, Origen says this, that the uh, uh, Satan uh, tempted Eve out of envy, uh, knowing that humanity was going to be exalted above the angels, that he's uh, for a little while lower than the angels. Uh, Satan attempts to subvert that process and tries to keep humanity in a subordinate place by uh, tempting Eve and leading to Adam's sin. Um, I'll put in a plug here for uh, uh, what I think is uh, going to be a monograph published by Oxford University Press um, by uh, Gerald Heastant. Uh, Gerald is a pastor at Calvary Memorial Church in Oak Park, Illinois. He's uh, involved with the Center for Pastor Theologians, past director for the Center for Pastor Theologians, and he did his doctoral dissertation on this theme of uh, Satan's envy as the, as the motivation for the temptation and the fall. And he's particularly working with Irenaeus and showing how that works out in Irenaeus' theology. Uh, and it, it, uh, it, he shows that it, uh, when you, it, it leads to a very different understanding of what the fall is about and also a different understanding of how redemption works out than you find, for example, in uh, his main counterpart or main contrast is with the way Augustine describes the fall and Satan's role in the fall. Uh, so uh, anyway, I, I believe that that's going to be published by Oxford University Press at some point in the future. So keep your eye out for Gerald Heastant's book. I think that's a, a preferable way to read the narrative of Genesis than trying to import other passages of Scripture which are not really talking about Satan and seeing them as part of the part of the backstory for Satan. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening. Mm-hmm.